entering the Freedom Hut. Conan the Wonder Dog visits the White House. The impeachment timetable and the wishful frenzy. Democrats are actually Putin's puppet. Let's be thankful for incredible employment in this country. A federal animal cruelty law goes into effect. And Twitter suspending people for putting out facts. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. So this is Conan. Right now, probably the world's most famous dog. I don't think I have to use the word probably. And Conan is a uh, incredible, it's an incredible story. I learned a lot about this particular type of dog. And we just gave Conan a, a medal and a plaque. And it's really, uh, and I actually think Conan knew exactly what was going on. Welcome to the Bucks Action Show. Conan, the dog that chased down Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, went to the White House yesterday. One thing that I'm I'm just surprised we can't seem to get an answer on, and people keep saying Conan is male, Conan is female. I, I understand that we are in a time of a particular sensitivity about 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 gender, but I mean this is a very straightforward process. Do we know, guys? I've seen it reported that Conan's a boy dog and Conan's a girl dog. Well, Conan's a wonder dog. That much is for sure. We know that. And there were a lot of folks that were smiling yesterday as the president brought Conan, the special operations dog, to the White House. Sure enough, if you thought that there would be no way that the journos would make this something that Trump did wrong or that Trump is to be criticized for, there were people who were saying that, They didn't like Trump bringing the dog to the White House. They didn't like that Trump made a joke about the dog going after reporters. Nothing is allowed to be funny. Nothing is allowed to be lighthearted. It all has to be always and at all times destroy the Trump presidency. If you deviate from that for even a moment, even just to say, wow, look at look at the really cool Belgian Malinois that is at the White House that was involved in a very high level and successful U.S. military raid to go after the most wanted terrorist really in the world. I think you would argue or you could argue Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is more wanted than uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. By the way, as we are here in New York City, there is also a uh, I don't know what is going on, but down the hallway, there's a a whole a a, a slew of puppies from what is this from the ASPCA? This is a sign. They come to iHeart once a year, I believe. Yeah. And uh, I just went to walk and get water, and there were just a bunch of puppies they're there. They're just and adorable. I There's just a whole. They're just little puppies all playing. There's like six of them. Or so they're yeah. all. They're they're about 15 feet from our studio right now, and they're absolutely adorable. And they want. They need homes. They need to exactly. Be adopted. They do adoption drives every year b- before the holidays. You know what would be a great wedding gr- wedding gift, producer Mark? I live in an apartment, Buck. She's gonna. The make- dog I held is going to be huge. If you look at its paws, yeah, it's gonna be huge. She's gonna make him get an, get a house though. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta have room for the puppies and for little marks and little marquettes that are going to be coming. Puppies first, then we'll puppies. talk about. That's what I else. always say. Puppies first. Mm-hmm. All right. So the good news about this week is that the journos are all pretty much on early vacay because they work so hard. So we get to talk about whatever we want here in the Freedom Hut. There are some interesting things breaking. There's some stories that we can dive into a little bit more deeply because we're not in the midst of. 
I saw, I think it was Jonathan Swan over at Axios who referred to Democrats' impeachment mania as a wishful frenzy. I've said that was very, it was a nice turn of phrase for Mr. Swan. I, I agree with that. A, a wishful frenzy indeed. Oh, it's coming. It's happening. That's why we had producer Mark play a montage. We need a montage. I haven't seen Team America in so long that I might actually go back and watch it again over the holidays. And they never made a sequel which I was promised. I was told there would be a sequel and there was not a, a sequel. Um, but we, we had a montage for you and it was from 2017. And it was everybody from you know Don Lemon to Joe Scarborough and everybody else. Oh, the walls are finally closing in on this president. He's gone too far. It's all over for him. Um, the beginning of the end. That's one of my favorite. I'm trying to think what the other canned phrases are that we always hear. Uh, turns out it's not the beginning of the end to borrow from churchill it is the end of the beginning however in this impeachment process we are now in the midst of it and some interesting notes on the timeline i wanted to establish today where it's all just going for a moment so that we can have an expectation as they try to they're going to come back congress is going to come back and right now they're in recess their staffs though are working furiously on this report so i i want us to know what to expect going forward because there's going to be a race to the finish because you know the members of congress are not going to spend christmas and the holiday in dc working no 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 congress doesn't do that kind of thing so they're going to have to cram and ram all this stuff so that it gets done uh, within the timeline it's almost like politics and the political timeline specifically of the democratic primary is pushing this whole thing and that it's not about the sanctity of our republic and, and protecting the foundations of our Constitution. Nancy Pelosi is weeping, weeping at the notion that they have to impeach the president. They really don't want to. He's, he's just such a big, mean meanie that they have to impeach him. No, they don't really have to impeach him at all, as we know. They were going to impeach him no matter what. But let's now look at what's going to happen. Uh, there's been a, a clear drop in the polls in support for certainly removal of the president and even impeachment of the president. Some are saying, I, I believe it was uh, Ari Fleischer, who's a, a savvy political observer. He said that perhaps now would be a good time for them to just go for a vote of censure instead of going all the way here and voting for a uh, an actual impeachment of the president. But I'm telling you Democrats can't do that because we have to remember what the first purpose of all of this is it's not to get to the truth it's not to protect the constitution it's not uh to give a full accounting of the facts to the american people about an incident that no one's even really going to remember in six months maybe even six days uh after at least this whole thing is over it is about trying to make sure the president of the united states is at a disadvantage in the election, using the process as a weapon against President Trump's re-election chances. That's all this is. That's all this is, ultimately in terms of its purpose. The left demands this, the Democrat base, the progressive maniacs who stand outside of college amphitheaters and chant by the thousands of curses and swears and call everyone racist and all. That component of the Democratic Party, which is increasingly the Democratic Party, the mainstream of it, they insist 
that a president that they have called a a traitor, a criminal, a rapist, certainly a liar many, many, many times, um, crazy, I can't think of, I'm probably leaving a few out, that they've called all those things. How could the Democrats say all that and then not impeach him as far as the left is concerned? So we are going to an impeachment vote. That is, I think, a fait accompli. There's not a better way to say it than the French way. Sometimes the French have got it. It's like the Germans. Sometimes the Germans have some super long word that means something very specific. And when you need that word, say it in the German, you know, is there a better way to say zeitgeist than zeitgeist? I don't think so. That's not a long one, but there's some really long ones too. So the timeline then becomes really important. As we're going into the holiday, we have a moment to catch our breath here and say, tomorrow we'll talk about turkey, stuffing, coffee, you know, no big whoop. Uh, we'll talk about all those things too. The the perennial fight year in and year out, is turkey a worthwhile primary protein on your Thanksgiving table? I'm seeing some people start some noise on the on the Twitter and on the Facebook that maybe you just maybe just sear a ribeye and just stop with all this gobble gobble nonsense. You know, maybe just go with your favorite food and be thankful that you can eat it and celebrate in that way. Or is that sacrilege? I don't even want to know what producer Mark thinks. Producer Brandon will find out from him tomorrow where he stands up. I, you're a turkey guy, aren't you? Of course. You probably you're probably one of those maniacs who eats turkey not on Thanksgiving. I mean. What do you mean maniacs that eats turkey now? Like a whole turkey or like a turkey no. sandwich? Like you'll eat turkey at other points of the year. You will skip over the far superior meats and, and eat turkey anyway. Yeah, I'll have a turkey sandwich, like sliced deli meat, maybe a turkey burger occasionally. See, this is part of the this is part of the problem here. We need we need truth in turkey. I don't see what the problem is. And turkey's just not a worthwhile meat. Are you gonna hate me that I say I'm a dark meat turkey type of guy? No, no. No, I like the dark meat. All dark right. meat turkey, dark meat chicken. You only live once. Go with the dark meat. It's more flavorful. Is it unhealthier? That's, it's the higher fat content. That's uh, what who say. cares? It's yeah. delicious. Brandon, you a turkey guy? I guess we're getting this done today. Yeah. No, I yeah. like turkey. Yeah. Turkey and cheese, because I told you I eat like a 10-year-old. Nice turkey yeah, that's, and that's cheese. That's true. Yeah. And I like the white are you gonna have like a slice? Are you going to have like turkey and then some mashed potatoes and like a slice of American cheese? Is that what you go for? What's your- Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Lunch is on you. Good talk. So the impeachment timeline instead of the turkey timeline, this was this was going to happen. Uh, if you look back at the impeachment process from the Clinton era, when I was uh, I was just a, a young lad, I was in high school. I don't remember much about this. I do remember seeing some of the snippets of the interview on TV and going, "Whoa, there's some stuff that happens with the president that's really surprising." Uh, but. It started and finished within a matter of a few months. This time around, they're going to have to do the same thing. Why? It's not because democracy dictates it be so. It's not because the vision of the founders, blah, blah. It's none of that. It is because Democrats have to get this thing done before you have a bunch of Democrat senators who need to be showing up in the Iowa caucuses and in the first New Hampshire primary in early February. This thing has got to get done before that. Now, the question that I put. So, so that's why they're, they're trying to ram this thing through. They're going to have the report out maybe as soon as next week, I'm seeing. You're also going to have the Horowitz report scheduled. This is the, the report from within the Department of Justice looking into FISA abuse. We've already talked about this a little bit on the show. I believe it's December 9th or the 10th or the 11th, something like that. Second week, December, you have the FISA report coming out. I don't know how they're going to try to time this with the uh, release of the impeachment report, but we already know what the impeachment report's going to say. It's just going to be 
a another version of the the recitation of bloviation and exaggerated disconnected factoids that Adam Schiff has been reading out at the start of each proceeding. That's all that's all it will be. They may tack on to it some other things. And right now they're probably furiously looking at the data to decide do we call it bribery, do we call it extortion, do we call it abuse of power? Abuse of power has the most leeway. It's not bribery and it's not extortion. So they can call it that, but now they're just making stuff. Now, now they're just crazy, and which I guess they are, but that's a leap. Everybody knows that's a leap, but they have to get this thing done before the Iowa caucuses rolls around or else they're going to start to have some problems. It's going to look like they didn't really think this thing through. I think it's quite possible they didn't really think this thing through. And that brings me to my main man, Cocaine Mitch, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He and his Senate Republican colleagues will be in a position to drag, using the process, just like Democrats do, to drag the Democrats through an annoying, difficult uh, stretch just to sort of show the country as much dirty laundry from the Democrat side as possible on all this. Get Hunter Biden out there, call Adam Schiff. I worry that this is where Republicans say, oh, well, we're just... Republicans in the Senate, I mean, will say, oh, well, we're through all that. We're we're too good to do that now. We're not going to do that. No, no, this is we are going into the 2020 election, my friends. This is an eye for an eye territory. This is time to make the Democrats live by the rules that they establish for all of us. And the only rule is that there are no rules when they have power. So maybe it's time they get a taste of their own medicine. I hope Cocaine Mitch decides to exact a terrible price from the Democrats through the Senate trial. We will see if he does. But now you know it's got to happen really in a matter of weeks. They do not have months unless they plan on just allowing the impeachment proceeding in the Senate to hijack the Democrat primary. And given that Bloomberg just got in, everybody understands that this Democrat primary, there's no front runner. There's no one who's particularly inspiring or great. I don't think they want to add to their troubles Unless, of course, you want to make the argument that Hillary Clinton is behind all of this in the in, in this on the sidelines, you know, be in the shadows, just waiting for her moment to emerge as the consensus candidate. But let's not get too conspiratorial. Not today, maybe tomorrow. I'm not even sure if we came to an agreement today that it would be enough time. I'm not even sure if we came to an agreement today that it would be enough time. I'm not even sure if we came to an agreement today that it so we had Nancy Pelosi there talking about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and we kind of turned it into the remix. It's fine. Whatever. I'm not even today enough time. You get the idea. Our point here is that they feel like they don't have time for this in the Congress. I, I'm here to just remind everybody that they got time for this sham impeachment trial. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, which does need a cooler name. I'm not going to lie to you. It needs a cooler name for sure would benefit American workers, would help this economy, would help the country. It's the, it's the dare I say, the right thing to do. If Congress took its job seriously, if the Democrat majority in the House wasn't entirely consumed with and only concerned with harming President Trump's electoral prospects, then they would most certainly take action on this item. They would do what they could to pass this. But it seems they have no interest whatsoever in that. 
because legislation that would pass going into an election year would benefit the president. I think this is necessary context for evaluating all of the sanctimonious speeches you will hear from Democrats in the days ahead about how oh, our duty to protect the American people, we have to protect them from Trump, he's so evil. Well, they could still say all the horrible things they say about Trump and try to damage him in all the ways that they do and do business that helps the American people. They don't have to make these things mutually exclusive. They make it mutually exclusive because anything that is good that comes out of government right now is to the benefit of Trump. And he is the president of the United States, despite their delusions otherwise. So they have no interest in really helping people. I also mentioned, I believe, on the show that we should be thankful for the employment numbers at this time of year. A lot of people going into this Thanksgiving and have uh, jobs that we were told would not exist based on the numbers of even even the projections back in 2014. We are at, you know, for people that try to say this is the Obama economy, I mean, that's that's preposterous. That's a joke. Uh, we are at a 50 year low. It has been 50 years since we have had so many people, particularly of prime working age, from 25 to 54, which I believe is also the demo for media stuff, right? 25, 54. Yeah, consider that prime working age, too. It's been 50 years since we've had so many people of that age range in the workplace, gainfully employed. The country right now, despite the absence of this uh, narrative in the media, the country is doing very well. Trump's policies and decision-making has been working. It is bringing benefits to you and to me. We should be a bit thankful. But the fact remains, we have a president, a commander-in-chief, who has no respect for the rule of law and no concern whatsoever for ethics or honor or for the values that truly make America great. No respect for law. That's what they say about this president. Meanwhile, you have had 40 nationwide injunctions by liberal activist judges against this president. Um, that is 20x what you had under the Obama presidency. Because people who are of the leftist mindset, they, they are increasingly totalitarian in their aims. They want control of everything. They want to punish you for speech, for thoughts, even if they can, if they can find a way. I do believe as we find out more about the way the Chinese use algorithms and the mass surveillance state to try and demand obedience of people and even do re-education in real time online of anyone who would dissent from the dominant view, that a lot of liberals look at that with some degree of envy. If only we could do that here. Meanwhile, a lot of us look at this and say, they already have near information uh, dominance because of the way social media works, because of the way our um, broadcast networks have just, they, they have adopted this narrative that liberalism is now, liberalism and the truth are synonymous. So anything a liberal thinks must be true. It's not that they're liberal, it's that it's just the way it is. This is a, a stunning, a stunning departure from good faith journalism, from good faith, uh, faith provision of information. But meanwhile, Michael Bloomberg runs around saying that we are to be terrified of what the president will do in this country. And he has no respect for the for the rule of law, no respect for ethics or honor. 
You mean like the Clintons? That's a family with a lot of respect for ethics and honor, right? That was what we were told we should. That was the option we should have taken last time around. The same people lecturing you right now about how Trump is so unethical and so. They're also the same people who pretend that Hunter Biden getting millions of dollars to do a no-show job in Ukraine while his dad is point man on policy there. That's fine. It's fine. No no problem. Nothing to see there. It's not illegal. Yeah, well, neither is what the president did with Ukraine, is it? Is that the standard or not? I'm just curious. The standard changes every day, though. It depends on whatever they want. I wonder what changed here. It wasn't long ago that Michael Bloomberg, who was the latest entry into the Democrat primary, Michael Bloomberg said that he was too old. Would you, uh, Producer Brandon, would you play clip 17, please? Uh, but it's just not going to happen on a national level for somebody like me starting where I am, unless I was willing to change all my views and go on what CNN called an apology tour. <laughs> Joe Biden went out and apologized for being male, over 50, white. Um, he apologized for the one piece of legislation, which is actually a pretty good anti-crime bill, which if the liberals ever read it, most of the things they like would be is in that bill. They should have loved that. They didn't even bother to read it. You're, you're anti-crime. You must be anti-populist. And so um, uh, everybody else, um, Beto, whatever his name yeah. is, he's apologized for being born. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't mean to be unkind. And he, he, people, a lot of people love him and say he's a smart guy. And someday, if he wins, I'd certainly support him. I just like I'm so sorry that I was born a a cisgender uh, hetero male who is white named Beto. Even I mean, I took the name Beto, but I'm still a white cisgender male. It's true what he says here about how you have to go around and apologize all the time. In fact, there's data that uh, Andy No, who we'll be talking about again here in a minute, there's data that is circulating right now that the only the only racial group in America that views its own racial group negatively, white liberals. White liberals do have white liberal guilt. This is a real thing. And this is a poll that's just been circulating all week. And my friend Andy No, if he is no longer suspended from Twitter, we'll get to that. You could see it in his in his feed. Now, let me just first say that no one should ever feel badly about their race. It is it is a bizarre and immoral thing to take the view that that one race is is le- you know that your own race would be less than another race. This is this is completely uh, contrary to sound and, and ethical thinking for anybody. All ra- all races are the same. All races are just human beings. It doesn't it, these are superficial characteristics of no importance to us as people and yet white liberals think that there's something wrong with being white I mean, we've all had this suspicion for a while but I mean, people have talked about white guilt since i was i remember hearing the phrase even back when i was in high school and it's a very real phenomenon you have these these white liberals they've adopted because they believe so much in the power of victimhood and victim status they, they talk about this for all these other individuals. The only way that they can then leverage the victim, uh, victimhood status of other so-called oppressed groups is for them to say that they're sorry, that they realize they, they are by nature, white liberals by nature of their skin color, are part of the oppressive class. And therefore, they have to make amends. And to make amends, they want to elevate all of the 
allegedly victimized classes. And oh, in that way, they become the good people and the good people who also need to be in power, I might add. This is where you get these sanctimonious white liberals who will walk around constantly. People like Beto O'Rourke, a perfect example. This country is so racist. It's just like the most racist country ever. And I just understand that by telling everybody how racist it is, like Beto is not racist because he's saying it's always like so racist. That's where we are. That is where white liberals are in their beliefs about all of this. But, you know, Bloomberg um, is right on some things. And the things that he's right on will be a problem for him in the uh, primary, the Democratic primary. You're not allowed to say stuff like, Lower, you know, more aggressive policing to lower crime can be a good idea. Whether you believe in stop and frisk or not, there was a lot of other stuff that went on in New York City to bring the crime rate down, down dramatically. Down so dramatically that it feels like an entirely different city from what it did when I was when I was growing up here. Um, but I, I mentioned to you Andy No before, and I did want to touch on this topic because it ties into a few things. My uh, one of my favorite podcasts, as you know, that I've listened to in a long time, and I don't have I don't have the time to listen to really any other because this is the best podcast. I don't really have a lot of time to listen to other podcasts, but once in a while, someone will say you got to listen to this. And I listen to Joe Rogan and Naval Ravikant talk to each other on the Joe Rogan show. And since then, I've been following Naval's work a little bit more when I can. And he tweeted out, uh, I think it was earlier this week, that they want to police your speech because they can't police your thoughts. The idea being, if they could police your thoughts, they would. They would like to get into, that is the ultimate control. And for people who think that controlling others is necessary for a good society, for people who think that control of the population through government that is benevolent, but all powerful, right? This is the government in place of God. This is central to the entire progressive thesis and the progressive approach to America, to any country. And this is why they also want one world government. There'll be one super government that has all the right ideas, that takes care of us all so well. I mean, this has resulted in misery, deprivation, slaughter, and genocide in other countries. The same thinking taken to its ultimate ends. But liberals still think in this country that they'll get it right. And so they're just creeping along. There's just this edging along toward total Control and control of thoughts is certainly a part of that process. We see this in China. I mean, they're trying to leverage technology now. You have the social credit system. You have a a mass surveillance state. And now they're using algorithms to determine who's a problem, who is uh, not on board with the ideology that they are supposed to be or that they are told they need to be. Um, We see this working all the time. It unfortunately has also seeped into our own Uh, our own system of censorship. Uh, It's not quite as pernicious here. It's not quite as as powerful as it is in the context of of China. Um, But Andy No, who is best known for being a guy who will go out there and uh, cover Antifa. Well, Andy No responded to somebody um, who said that essentially transgender individuals are under murderous assault in this country uh, that there is a a a plague of violence against transgender oh by the way he also i found here andy's 
This is a 2018 survey from ANES. I don't even know what that is. But Andy tweeted this out. Mean in-group bias by race or ethnicity. And you have a huge disparity of white liberals who do not like uh, do not like the fact that they are that they are white, um, which is a thing that I, I, I it's not surprising to any of us, uh, but it is noteworthy as we see what's going on. Um, I'm trying to find this other one where you have Andy No, Twitter suspends conservative journalist Andy No, and and here's why. Um, he committed hateful conduct, according to Twitter. You might wonder what what does a journalist? By the way, Andy is Andy is a, a minority. He's Asian American. He's also openly he's he's gay. Um, what did Andy No do that was hateful, such that in response to a Chelsea Clinton tweet, ah, white liberal, there we go. In response to a Chelsea Clinton tweet, Twitter would suspend him. Well, Chelsea Clinton tweeted out the following. Since 2013, more than 150 trans people have been murdered in the U.S. The majority are black transgender women, an epidemic of violence and hate. Now, 150 over the course of six years to call that an epidemic in a country of 330 million people would seem to be a bit of a stretch. Right. What is the overall number? What is the overall population and, and, and how much uh, what is the homicide rate for them versus the homicide rate for black transgender females? It turns out that there is no particularly high rate. But see, you start to ask these questions and people get angry at you. What are you saying? It's not. No, of course, it's, it's a horrible thing that anybody would would murder anyone of any gender identity or of any, any race, anything. It's the most heinous crime out there you cannot murder people we're all opposed to murder but if we're talking about public policy and if we're talking about the numbers then can't we be honest about it um andy wrote that the 150 deaths over several years were in a nation of more than 300 million people that's hardly an epidemic he said the u.s is one of the safest countries in the world for trans people the murder rate of trans victims is actually lower than for the cis population meaning for the for the uh, heterosexual population and he also then tweeted out the following also who is behind a vast majority of these murders of black transgender females african-american males <gasps> not allowed not by the way this this is statistically he is correct this is true this is a fact this is not up for debate in fact there's only a handful of these 150 murders that chelsea clinton the Go, she's going to run for Senate and then president, by the way. Just you, you heard it here if you haven't heard it somewhere else. Chelsea Clinton, she, she thinks she should be the leader of the free world because mommy and daddy are famous. But, and we're politicians, obviously. Dad was president. Mom thought she was going to be president, still does. But 150 murders over the course of six years. We're told this is an epidemic. It's not an epidemic. Every single life lost is, is sad, is wrong, and uh, there should be a full investigation. The perpetrator should be punished. But this is not an epidemic. So Chelsea Clinton has millions of followers. Why is she saying this? Oh, because it's about it's it's the virtue signaling of look at this particularly oppressed group and how concerned Chelsea Clinton is with this oppressed group. Andy No comes out and says, well, that's actually not a lot of people by the numbers per capita nationwide. It's not. And it's lower than the national average for people being killed in this country outside of any uh, victimized group. 
And a vast majority of the perpetrators happen to be African-American males, which he just pointed out. That's just a, that's also true. So the people that are killing these black transgender females are overwhelmingly, and, and I think was only a handful of exceptions to this, black males. He just he just shared that. In, this is data. You can check it up on the check it out on the FBI website. You can check it out online. This is data. Twitter suspended him for this. For hateful conduct. Why is this hate? Why is this hateful? We're talking about numbers. We're talking about a public policy issue of, of importance. Why is the number OK to share and then analyze it? But then contra or rather other numbers, additional numbers to give context are not allowed to be shared. Well, my friends, because unfortunately, the left has already adopted this position for a long time, and you're going to see more and more of it. Facts can be hateful. Numbers can be hateful. It's whatever they determine. That's what is hateful. Twitter, Facebook, Google, all the different news organizations. They get to decide what is hateful because they get to decide what is speech and what is allowable. We keep getting pushed closer and closer to a society where we no longer really have freedom of speech. We seem to be forgetting this. They tell us what, oh, we're going to get into, by the way, pronoun usage later on in the show, too. They tell us what we can say about other individuals, and they tell us now the force of law will be used. They're openly advocating for hate crime laws that criminalize speech. Say the wrong word, and you can go to prison. Journalists who are supposed to live and die by the First Amendment, anything to protect the First Amendment, journalists are saying, yeah, well, except for really hateful stuff. This is the country we are increasingly living in, and I think we are a bit of the boiling frog in the pot here. Uh, we are not paying close enough attention to how quickly our rights are eroding on this at all. I hope Andy gets his Twitter account back. i got to check and see. Um, but it's just a matter of time before yours truly gets suspended. You watch. God's used uh, imperfect people all through history. King David wasn't perfect. Uh, Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Uh, and I actually gave the president... Uh, a little one-pager on those Old Testament kings about a month ago. Hmm. And I shared it with him. I said, Mr. President, I know there are people that say, you know, you, you said you were the chosen one. Uh, and and I, I said, you were. I, I said, if, if you're a believing Christian, you understand God's plan uh, for the people who uh, rule and, 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 and judge over us on, on this planet in our, in our government. Pretty uncontroversial stuff if you're a believing Christian uh, from Governor Rick Perry, uh, now uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, and uh, liberals freaked out about it. Why? Because they're okay with Democrats in office talking about God, but when a Republican does it, the theocracy has arrived. I just had to know, but this was so absurd, so silly. This became a news story yesterday that Rick Perry, a Christian, says that God chooses leaders and that God's hand is at work in all things in the world. God has a plan. This is now controversial. Gotta have background checks done for your business. That's where my friends at Global Verification Network come in. They're the only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company. Now, I understand that there are a lot of other people out there who are doing background checks by getting the work to people overseas. You don't want that. You want someone who's doing it all here in the US of A. You want to support a veteran owned company and a company that does not outsource its work, its investigations overseas. It also means better control over the data and better customer service. When you call Global Verification Network, you're going to get somebody on the phone who can answer any questions you have fast. Whatever size business you're in anywhere across the country, please use my friends at Global Verification Network for all of your background check needs. 
give them a call at 877-695-1179. Again, that's 877-695-1179. Or you can go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. Cisgender, fat shaming, heteronormativity, intersectionality, patriarchy, rape culture. These are all terms that you have probably become familiar with, if not from listening to this show, just because they're out there now in the discourse. They sound like they should mean something because you hear them a lot. But where do they come from? In fact, I told you all, what was it now, maybe a couple of years ago, that I had just heard this term cisgender for the first time, which struck me as odd because starting at a very young age, I had a pretty expansive vocabulary. I'd never heard of this thing before. Where, where did it come from? Intersectionality. Where did it where did it come from? Well, there is a fantastic article in the Wall Street Journal about, by Peter Bogosian about something called idea laundering. And this really matters, by the way. Even if you don't care about what crazy academics are saying on campuses, this is, you often have heard me say that campuses are the laboratories for left wing craziness. That's where they're doing the most experimentation in a place where there are really no constraints on the stupidity, on the absurdity of their ideas, and they come out of these laboratories with these ideas. The campuses uh, propagate these different words and, and concepts into the broader society with the stamp of approval of, well, it comes from university professors who have peer-reviewed journals. And ah, Bogosian walks us through what he calls idea laundering. This is really interesting because this is how it all happens. The reason why your kids, for those of you who have kids about this age, will be coming home from school, certainly from high school, being told about gender identity versus sex. What's the difference? The reason your kids will come home and be told that intersectionality is the truth of all American society, that there are different groups that are constantly in a, in a battle for who is oppressing who. Um, heteronormativity, a fancy way of saying most people are heterosexual. That's all that, that that's what, and, and then they extrapolate all these things from that concept. But that's heteronormativity is that the dominant uh, culture, the dominant perception that people have of sexuality is that men are attracted to women and women are attracted to men. That's not the case. That's the only way things are in this or any other society. But that has been the dominant paradigm. How do you get these ideas? Oh, fat shaming is the one that actually Bogosian uh, singles in on here. What do you do if you are a particularly activist-minded academic? How do you create concepts that then will get fed into the broader society and have a real influence? I mean, you look at, for example, the Obama administration. The Obama administration's policy on uh, bathroom usage for people that have gender identity issues was you better allow the, you know, the 12 year old boy to use a 12 year old girl's locker room or else we will consider pulling Department of Education funding under discrimination, uh, discrimination, you know, accusations <clears throat> that you're being discriminatory. So this, this goes all the way up to pop. rape culture. This was another one I kept hearing about all the time. Rape culture on college campuses. CNN even had a documentary. I didn't watch it because it's CNN and CNN's crap. But CNN had a documentary, I think, called The Hunting Ground 
about college campuses. There were these journos who were so very gullible, not just in the Duke lacrosse case where there was no rape and there was a really a, a deranged accuser who tried to ruin a bunch of people's lives and a power mad Democrat prosecutor, Nifong, tried to ruin some young boys' lives. The media went along with that because, you know, there's this culture of rape on campus. Rape is a felony. You know, you sit down to have lunch with somebody and you tell them that you, you know, got caught up in a stock scam 10 years ago. You served a little time. They might say, yeah, you know, we all make mistakes. You know, you served your debt to society. You sit down and say that you were uh, convicted of rape. The person's going to rightly want to end the lunch and say, what the heck is this? This is a rape culture. Just the, the, the notion that that's a, a phrase that should be in common usage is, is absurd on college campuses. But that's what they say. Where does all of this come from? It comes from campuses. It comes from the takeover of academia by uh, left-wing activists with degrees in social studies without really much to add to the discourse and who don't really view their role as making sure that people who go to school know things and gain certain skills. They view their role as making sure they only know certain things that they tell them they have to know for the purposes of being the shock troops of the left when they are going through adulthood and then raising their own children. They are indoctrination factories. You see this all the time. How often do you have a left-wing speaker show up at a college campus and thou people challenged me on this, by the way, when we talked about the Ann Coulter speech at Berkeley. I said, uh, I brought this up on the show and, and someone, some blue check journo idiot was uh, saying to me, well, this happens, look at, a, look at a Trump rally. I said, well, I'm not talking about political rallies. Talking about invited speakers to a college campus. Name me one time that a left-wing speaker has shown up at a college campus and there have been a thousand, two thousand angry, screaming, profane, shrill, shrieking conservatives saying you're not allowed to speak here. How many I could sit here and run through off the top of my head dozens of speeches where that has happened with leftists. I mean, I don't know if the number was a thousand or a hundred protests, but, you know, where they try to shut it down, shut it down. Don't allow people to be heard. The ideas are too dangerous, you see, including ideas that in many cases have been considered consensus or, or status quo within the academy stretching back for decades. How do they do this? How do they change the conversation so abruptly so that now we have to use terminology that they set for us? Ah, let me bring you back to this Bogosian piece. An idea laundering. It's a fabulous piece. Really important. Because this is why you're, again, why your kids are coming home saying cisgender and gender identity and all this stuff. You're like, what? It all starts on the campus. Here's what they do. You got a bunch of people that feel a certain way in academia. We feel like fat shaming, for example, is wrong. Now, being mean to anyone is wrong. Being mean to anyone because of their weight. I think a vast majority of us all have different times or we're struggling with weight or we're trying to get a little healthier or trying to drop some pounds. We, there's a lot that goes into weight, including uh, genetics, including people's socioeconomic circumstances. You know, it's just not as simple as, oh, just show willpower. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And people should be considered about that. Um, and it's a struggle that I think a lot of us all share. Uh, but that's different than creating an academic discipline around fat shaming, which is what colleges have done. How they do it? Well, they start a journal. 
an academic journal, in this case, it was uh, called Fat Studies. They created an academic periodical called Fat Studies, and they had then other academics write about how talking about fat as a bad thing or overweight, being overweight or obesity is a bad thing was psychologically harmful and distressing and all. And then they have other academics who peer review this, but they see the peer review process is supposed to be, uh, and this goes back to the, the, the roots of the academy. It's supposed to be a process of distilling truth through opposition to what is being written there. Or looking for flaws, looking for counterarguments, looking for ways that this that the peer review is supposed to be. Is this thing unassailable? Is it true? Try to show us that it's not true. That's not how peer review works in social social studies departments or whatever social sciences rather, which are not science. As a political science major, I can tell you there was no science to it at all. The few times we looked at regression analysis and statistics and things, everybody's eyes rolled back in their head and they said, "Let's argue more about you know abortion rights." Nobody cared about any of that other stuff. There's really no science to it. Uh, but if you look at the social sciences across the academy, what you find out is that as long as you're taking a left-wing point of view, the peer review process for these journals that they just make up is meant to just consolidate the opinion around whatever is being promulgated. So they all, they all go, yeah, that's great. If, you know, we've got to fat shaming is a terrible thing. And then when people say, well, what about the health risks and the, I mean, that's the biggest public health epidemic we really face actually now has to do directly with, with diseases of, of excess, disease of excess calories and uh, type 2 diabetes, among other things. And, and they just shout all that down with, excuse me, we have a fat studies journal that explains all of this. It is peer reviewed. It is the science now. But it's not the science. It's just... The consolidation of like-minded opinion in something they are calling a journal that they are saying is peer-reviewed that is really just their forwarding of a narrative, a narrative based on emotion and feeling, a narrative that is not rooted in any, in any reality. Here's an example in Fat Studies, the journal. Toward a fat pedagog- uh, pedagogy, a study of pedagogical approaches aimed at challenging obesity discourse in post-secondary education. Does anyone even know? I mean, I just read that to you. I read it. I've read it before. I read the piece before it came on air. I don't even really know what they think they're saying here. Uh, and that's part of this as well. They dress up flimsy thoughts with fancy words because then most people just sort of say, okay, it looks, it looks like it's academic. And therefore, there's some... Uh, imprimatur on the fact that this is coming out of a college or a university. There must be some truth to it. Um, I always say that word a little bit funny because I feel like I say it wrong sometimes, but whatever. I learn words by reading them, not by hearing them. Uh, These articles tell us that obesity is a narrative such as being healthy at, and there's another narrative such as being healthy at every, at every size. And there's no reason to privilege one narrative over another. This is, see this, the reason why he focused in on fat studies here in this piece is because that's just not true. Being morbidly obese is very, very dangerous for your health. There is no alternative. There is no scientific alternative narrative about how being morbidly obese is, is okay for your health. This is not the same thing as don't be mean to people that are struggling with weight. I've struggled with weight. Lots of people struggle with weight. Everybody struggles with weight, really, that, you know, you come across on a day-to-day basis, just they don't necessarily talk about it. But 
to say that, yeah, you know, you weigh you weigh a thousand pounds. Uh, that's fine. That's the way, you know, that's the way God made you. It's not this is not based in any science. This is just narrative. And then when you start to take this and look at, OK, what about cisgender and heteronormativity and all these other concepts that come out? They, they're giving fancy words to, well, we have a feeling that people shouldn't just think that being heterosexual is the the normal thing. Well, normal is a word that imbues some value judgment on things, but it is certainly the majority. And there's no reason to believe that that's going to change anytime soon. Intersectionality, there are different groups that are all filled with oppression against each other and that there's a, a actual hierarchy of oppression that the left looks at throughout American society. You know, are you black? Are you Latino? Are you white? Are you Asian? Are you trans? Are you, you know, all these different things. And that every discussion of politics has to, the first thing you do is put somebody on that board, if you will, on that chessboard, on that playing field. Before you can discuss the merits of an argument, the drawbacks of an argument, what's true, what's fair, what's good, what's decent. Now, forget all that. First, where, do the, where does this person go in the intersectional hierarchy? This all comes from academia. This is uh, a problem for the kids who have to study these places. This is from the Bogosian piece. Quote, students leave the academy believing they know things they do not know. They bring this knowledge to their places of employment where, over time, Laundered ideas and the terminology that accompanies them become normative, giving them even more unearned legitimacy. This is why you've heard of some of the terms we began with cisgender, fat shaming, heteronormativity, intersectionality, patriarchy, rape culture and whiteness. They've been laundered through the peer reviewed literature by activist scholars, then widely taught for years before being brought into the world. This is not knowledge. These are just feelings dressed up by academia to make it seem like if you argue with this, you are breaking with the consensus of the super smart people who all they do is sit around thinking about this stuff. And yet it's full of jargon and absurdity. This is where you got that piece that was published in a peer reviewed journal. And the title of the piece was, and I quote, uh, the penis as social construct, end quote. It was published and peer-reviewed by an academic journal that claimed to be the authority on different gender studies, and, and they put this thing out there because they're so steeped in this kind of thinking, and they're so used to taking f- ideas that are, that are just really about either political or cultural proclivities and prejudices and make it seem like there's something behind this. So then, well, I feel this way. Yeah, it would be like if I if I created an academic journal about how marzipan is a greatly underrated food that everybody should eat more and should be more readily available because it's delicious. And I just don't see it in enough places. And I got a bunch of other people that love marzipan to come together and say, hey, we reviewed this and he's right. You should have more marzipan, especially around the holidays. I'm starting a movement. I'm not building any science. This is Alinskyite community organizing in place of academic intellectual rigor and pursuit of the truth. That has it has overtaken our college campuses and universities. It's why these kids come out spouting these things and they get so defensive and so angry when you when you challenge it. 
because these ideas are not supposed to be challenged. It's peer-reviewed. It's put out in the journal. Professor so-and-so and Professor so-and-so use this. And, and you get to sound smart because you use these big, new, fancy words. But what does it all mean? Nothing. I understand what it's like to go through the process of buying life insurance. I had to do it before I went overseas. It felt a little bit weird. But that's why you need to check out my friends at Ethos Life Insurance because they make sure that there's no hassle, no nonsense, and they'll find a plan that allows you to make sure that your family is prepared for an uncertain future. This is something you've got to do. It's the responsible choice, and Blink makes it easy for you. There's no fine print or silly appointments or fees that you just really can't afford. Ethos's approach is simple, to blend industry expertise, technology, and the human touch. That helps you find the right policy for you to protect your loved ones. It only takes about 10 minutes to apply, and Ethos is already trusted by thousands. Get a fast, free, and personalized quote right now at ethoslife.com. Again, that's ethoslife.com. Ethos Life Insurance is life insurance that actually fits your life. I just want to know, this This is a real news story because I, I mentioned marzipan and my my activism in, in favor. I wanted to pick something kind of random, but I do really, I mean, marzipan and chocolate. You ever eat it? No, that's too, it's like way too, you're not, that's not a burger with no bun and American cheese on it. I don't even know what marzipan is. Are you serious? I, I oh, wish it's like I wasn't. a sweetened almond paste. It's amazing. It's like in candy sometimes. Anything with paste, so, I, I don't want to eat that. So you usually think you can you can give your your takes on food, and you're allowed because food is is literally about taste, right? We use the word taste for things we like. Food though is like how does this taste to me? And it is inherently subjective, and people have different taste buds. And don't use too much hot sauce, folks. Over time, it starts to you, you you're the uh, the burning and everything that can actually dull. I'm just telling you. So, hashtag science. I like hot sauce too, but don't go too crazy with it. Tom Nichols. Uh, Tom and I know each other a little bit. I've had him on the show in the past. Tom is now a Democrat. He used to be a conservative. Trump broke him. I don't know what to say. Um, he tweeted out, I think people often pretend to like non-American cuisines as a way of showing sophistication. I'm honest enough to say my mostly Irish taste buds cannot handle whatever it is, whatever's called Indian food in the U.S. and the U.K. You may continue with your out, outrage. And you know what's amazing? Uh, there was outrage. People were saying this was racist. <laughs> People were saying you should get fired. You are not allowed to not like Indian food. I guarantee you if you trashed American food as a white male... People would say, oh, yes, of course, America, America, people like, you know, what's considered sophisticated among liberals to say America has no culture. Yeah, we're just the most uh, wealthy, powerful, sophisticated, culturally dominant country in the history of the planet. And we have no culture. That's a really that's a smart take. People say this stuff all the time. But this is a BBC news story. All right. Say you don't like Indian food and you get trashed globally for being a racist this is the world we live in now i also wanted to uh, just point something out here you know i like to dive into the left-wing desire to control speech and to make us use certain words and I, I do think we're heading into a place where the idea laundering that the grievance scholars engages in uh has already become the way that you are judged by in social media interactions you can now be banned we talked about andy no getting suspended because of hateful posts it's not hateful it's just stating facts um, but stating facts can be hateful to leftists but also if you you have to remember that even if you give them what they want in some cases 
what the left wants now in, in discourse is often absurd and self-contradictory. It is destined to only result in more demands about what you can say and how you can say it. So don't think that you buy them off by just uh, by conceding on this or conceding on that issue. You concede to what you think is right, what you think is moral. For example, I've always said, if somebody wants to change their name, everyone has a right to change their name. So if a guy named Bob now wants to be called, you know, Claudette, that's I will call Bob Claudette the same way that my you know, my middle name is Buckman and people call me Buck and everyone goes, why do you have such a weird name? I don't know. Ask my parents. They wanted to make life harder than it had to be. Love you, mom and dad. Uh, but, you know, it's this is people are allowed to choose. You're allowed to choose your name. You're allowed to choose your name. Um, that's different, though, than saying you have to be a party to falsehood or a fraud to say that you have to be willing to agree uh, to say things that you know to be untrue. And here's something that I that I thought was very, very interesting today, uh, looking at the argument around announcing your pronouns. This is the thing you're supposed to do. You know, my pro- my pronouns are he, his and and him. And people do this and, and you know you're at a it's really become something like the secret handshake at a left wing gr- a rally group, anything. You stand up and you say, and this reminds me of during the Occupy Wall Street days, remember that protest movement? People would do, they would do this thing where they would uh, uh, twinkle their fingers in the air as a way of showing a- applause. Um, they would also, they would snap instead of clap and they would do this thing called mic check. They go, mic check, mic check. And, you know, one person says something and everyone repeats it as a way of amplifying the message. Uh, these were these were cultural signifiers of being in good being in the in group with the left of being in the in the cool kid group, if you will. For most people, because a very, very small percentage of the country has a problem with its gender, doesn't understand its gender. It's less than one percent of this country. For most people saying what your pronouns are would seem to just be an enormous waste of time. But uh, here's the issue with that. The reason that you are supposed to say what your preferred pronouns are now, and this is according to leftist doctrine. This is now, if you're going to be, you know, you had this at you know CNN when they had their town hall and Chris Cuomo, bro Cuomo made his joke like, yeah, here are my pronouns. <laughs> and everybody's like, not funny, not funny. Um, but the reason you say it is that it is meant to show that there's nothing out of the ordinary and therefore there should be no uh, disapproval heaped on people who do not seem visually to align with whatever their preferred pronouns are. So the, uh, so the, the point here is to make it that if everybody announces their pronouns – then when people feel compelled to announce their pronouns, they won't be automatically singled out for being strange for announcing their pronouns. So it's like we all do it. And therefore, um, you know, nobody should feel left out. I mean, I, I, it kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was in Saved by the Bell where Lisa Turtle sprained, remember this? Lisa Turtle sprained her ankle and she had to go to prom and they did a dance called the sprain where everybody was pretending that they because she didn't want to feel left out. So everyone's sure. doing the sprain. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I remember that. Episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she went with Screech, right? Who yes, had, who, begrudgingly. Yeah. Who had quite a career afterwards. 
Of, a career of, in jail of, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dustin Diamond. I, I watched that show so many times. I even remember their names. Yeah. I believe her name was Lark Voorhees. Yes, and there was Mark Paul Gazalar, and of course Mario Lopez. Yes, and All Tiffany right. Amber. Who I believe is I believe is a little right of center. By the way, I I, I have I've been, yeah. I've been isn't told. he the host of Extra or something like yeah, that? One of those shows. Anyway, so everyone danced like they had a sprained ankle because then no one felt like they were left out with the sprain. That was the whole idea. If everyone announces their pronouns, then no one's left out when they have to announce their pronouns. That's the or feels feels weird. Here's the problem. This is why I'm starting with this. Is why I'm trying to tell you the left is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. When people announce their pronouns and everyone is announcing their pronouns and the pronouns align with what you would expect them to be in a vast majority of cases, then when someone is expected to announce their pronouns and they have a different gender identity, they will clearly be different than the people that are announcing their pronouns. So just by announcing it, it doesn't change the basic fact that you have somebody who perhaps appears to be male who says my pronouns are, you know, uh, she her and hers. So you haven't dealt with the issue at all. And then what it just turns into is, well, now you're being, now everyone is announcing their pronouns is therefore playing into perhaps the stereotypes around who does and does not conform to their gender identity. So we're just back where we started. It doesn't do anything. It makes no sense to announce your pronouns. It's supposed to be some kind of concession to a group that feels aggrieved and put upon. But if we all actually did what they tell us to do, the next demand would be, well, you know, now, now we can't announce our pronouns because when we do, it's just showing the people that announce them that they're different. It's like they're having to proclaim it to everybody, their differentness. It changes nothing. This is stupid. It is absurd. But it's really not about being kind. It's not about being decent. If it were, I'd be in favor of those things. It's about getting you to bend the knee. You bend the knee on announcing your pronouns, and then you bend the knee on nobody announces your pronouns. You know, you bend the knee on saying that somebody is a she when it's a he, and then you bend the knee when you say that we're not allowed to use any gender-specific pronouns for anyone anymore. And then this, of course, also influences how we can talk about policy. You know, uh, are you are you allowed to object uh, to a transgender female, biologically male, being the counselor for a day camp for, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, young girls? Is that is that something you're allowed to look at gender identity that way? And start, you know, this is and they, they just expect you to bend the knee or they will destroy you. And this is why we spend time on these issues here on the show, because the way you're allowed to talk about things. And the way that society insists that you only use certain words, whether it's undocumented or you know cisgender or any of these things, this is all for a purpose. And the purpose is not being polite. The purpose is getting you to bend. The purpose is getting you to say, okay, fine, I submit. I'll do what you tell me to do. Because once they get you to start the habit of submitting to their absurd and constantly changing demands – then they can just continue on with that momentum and get you to just start conceding to other things too. And they know that, you know, once you say, fine, fine, leave me alone, then you'll say, fine, leave me alone. I'll, I'll, I'll do it on this other thing too. You know, I, I won't go to Chick-fil-A anymore because you know, the Chick-fil-A is so, is so uh, bigoted. You know, I won't do this. I want to just, please just let me live my life in peace. I'll do whatever you want. This is what they want. That sentiment, that feeling of I'll do anything in order to prevent the continued to intellectual, psychological, harassment, that's what they want. 
Don't give it to them. Think this stuff through on your own. That's why we've got the Freedom Hut, friends. Big headline right now on foxnews.com. Collision course. Long-awaited report on FISA abuse from the inspector general could scramble Dems impeachment plans. Some of us have been saying, by some of us I mean certainly me, all along, that perhaps the imperative for impeachment at all costs isn't only driven by the desire to thwart the uh, 2020 election, that's the primary one, but also perhaps to get ahead, I believe I said this on Brett Baer's show a couple of weeks ago, to get ahead of the um, report that's going to make things look pretty bad for the Democrats. Here's where we are right now on the whole FISA abuse. Um, people call it Spygate. I think that's a little too broad. It's like almost calling it like Badgate or something. Like Spygate is, it's not, that doesn't really work for me as a term, but you know, look, there's no good term for it. I understand. Uh, but the effort, the effort to use the intelligence apparatus of the United States government against a presidential campaign, that that has somehow been treated as normal, that that has found its way into our discussions about what's going on with the presidency. People say, yeah, well, of course, of course they surveilled Carter Page. And of course they did. No, it's not an of course situation. This uh, low-level lawyer, that was the report we had last week um, from within the Department of Justice who was removed and maybe criminally prosecuted for changing something that went into a FISA report. Um, They're going to try to say that this was just a lone actor. Once again, somebody else doing something that only makes sense if they have a feverish hatred of Donald Trump and are willing to do Anything, including getting fired and losing their job and losing perhaps their freedom to stop Trump. But we're told that this is this is a one off. This is a one off. This isn't somebody, this lawyer that uh, they're saying change the FISA. There's nothing to be worried about here. Nothing to be concerned about here. Mm, I disagree. I disagree. Um, The problem that we're going to face here is that they. First of all, they've brought over to CNN. So anything you see from CNN is kind of hilarious. They've got McCabe over there. They've got uh, the former general counsel, Baker, I believe, of the FBI. This guy is over there on CNN all the time. And they were the ones in power. I mean, CNN has people analyzing essentially their own actions as though they're fair-minded experts on these issues. They're putting them in front of you because CNN was in on this whole thing, too. Uh, Tapper found out about the dossier being briefed to the uh, to Trump uh, you know, within two days. And then he got all mad at Ben Smith from BuzzFeed because Ben Smith actually showed people what the dossier was. And Tapper wanted to squeeze as much as he could out of that whole dossier story as long as he could because he's a hack and a fraud. Uh, but, yeah, that was the that was the way this thing was all going. And yet now we look at it and say to ourselves, huh, maybe. Just maybe what we will see when this FISA report comes out is that there was an effort to pretend that people were very dumb and had very bad judgment at senior levels of the United States government uh, when really what they were doing was playing dumb so they could make mistakes that would happen to be negative for Trump that would allow, for example, different communications that Carter Page had with anybody in the Trump campaign to be 
looked at to be part of the collection process under that FISA warrant. And, you know, Papadopoulos and these different investigations that were going at this time, uh, this is not possible. None of this is possible in a good faith law enforcement effort where people would say, well, hold on a second. Carter Page, who had worked alongside the FBI against Russian spies, was known to the FBI, had already met with the FBI, and who the FBI knew Russian spies said was kind of an idiot. He's the nexus for this whole Russia-Trump conspiracy. And remember this, my friends, even if they tell you that they had a legitimate justification for looking at Russian interference in the election, which I believe they did, that is a big leap from, okay, we also have to make sure that we can investigate the presidential campaign and then the presidency itself of Donald Trump because of this theory that Trump and his campaign were working with the Russians. Where does that come from? Who originated that idea? This is what we really have to know. I mean, I think people would say right now, you might be guessing, you know, Brennan and Clapper. You know, there are a few people that come to mind. But where, what were the real origins of all of this? We may get closer to that with this report that comes out on FISA. Uh, we'll also find out, those of us who were saying the dossier was necessary Without the dossier, it probably wouldn't have been able to get to the level of the FISA request they had on Carter Page. We'll see how accurate that was. We also, though, have the problem of the bureaucracy covering for itself, which I think is you're going you're going to see that that's that's going to happen here. I wish it weren't the case. It will be the case. The bureaucracy will be covering for itself at some level. They will say that bad judgment is not criminal and bad judgment in matters of using the fearsome powers of the federal government against a presidential campaign. That just comes down to bad judgment. That's all. Bad judgment isn't about politics. It's not about criminality. You can't think that there really is a deep state just because these guys kept on bending the rules and making poor decisions that all happen to go toward getting dirt on Trump. That's right. They love to talk about Trump getting dirt on Hunter Biden. Our own FBI under the Obama administration was trying to get dirt on President Trump and use FISA to do it. If they can, let me let me just say this. If they can get a FISA warrant on Carter Page, they can get a FISA warrant on anybody. You can always come up with some pretext. You got any friends in a foreign country? Yeah, you know, those friends probably have foreign friends who are bad. Let's just run a FISA on you. It's a joke. It's absurd. Well, you know, they talk to people like me. Oh, well, he has friends in foreign countries and he knows people in the intelligence services. And, you know, we better we better monitor him. So I'm, I don't have high hopes, which now reminds me of the the, the Buddha judge, like the Buddha judge song. And do you ever seen this? The the. Uh, the high hopes dance that everyone's doing now for Buddha Judge. This is like his followers. Yes, is... I, they, it, was, it was mocked on SNL this weekend. Oh, it was. Yeah, they said he was trying to get a, a negative percentage of the black vote. Wow, oh. I did not see that. Um, but I do not have high hopes for the Inspector General report being a massive blow to the deep state. I do think, though, that 
they're going to want us to swallow. It'll be like the, the other inspector general report where they said that there was no bias in the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which was not true. There was bias. They showed us all this bias and they said there wasn't bias. They're going to show us all kinds of abuse of FISA. But then in order to protect the institution of the Department of Justice and the FBI, they're going to say it wasn't political, though. So there really isn't any abuse that went on here. Oh, no, there was abuse. Well, team, I know we're going into the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, producer Mark, there's football over the Thanksgiving holiday, right? That's a thing that happens that people I see it in the background sometimes at the various homes where I've been for. Yeah, there's the football thing that happens. But there's been some big stories in the news for football. And I didn't want to skip over them entirely, but I figured I'd bring somebody in who, for example, unlike me, knows that the Rams now play in Los Angeles and not St. Louis. You learn something new every day, especially for me in the world of sports. We got a sports expert with us, though. Our friend Clay Travis is with us now. He is the Outkick the Coverage host, also author of the book Republicans by Sneakers 2. Clay, thanks for coming back. Hey, appreciate y'all having me. Thanks a lot. So let's start with this uh, this editorial, New York Times editorial, which is how it came into uh, my vision, my, my uh, daily deep dive here, from uh, Tennessee Coates, the cancellation of Colin Kaepernick. He's making the argument here that Colin Kaepernick is a victim of cancel culture after, well, everything, but also this uh, tryout. What really happened with Colin Kaepernick, both at this tryout and also tell me what you think the reality is of whether he's part of cancel culture? Well, I think that uh, Colin Kaepernick has realized that as a partner, he is more valuable than he is as a backup quarterback in the NFL, which is the job that he would have if he really wanted to continue to play sports. And so uh, I, I think he made a conscious decision to wear the, uh, the Kunta Kinte uh, T-shirt and to, uh, and to perform uh, in the fashion that he did with his own camera crew there and everything else uh, because he wanted to continue to be a social justice warrior martyr uh, for the woke uh, sports media out there. And uh, the reality is, look, this guy is a backup quarterback. And backup quarterbacks are not necessarily given a lot of attention in the NFL, certainly not if their starting quarterback is healthy. And I think Colin Kaepernick is aware that if he is on the sideline, not actually playing, that, uh, that his value as a martyr declines precipitously. And so I think in many ways he sabotaged the, uh, the tryout that the NFL uh, tried to set up for him. Now, one of the things that comes up when people talk about, about Kaepernick, and I mean, it was pretty amazing reading this, uh, this New York Times piece. I don't know if you saw the, the Coates editorial. Yeah, I read, I, I read it. I mean, it was, it was totally absurd and ridiculous. And the fact that that guy is considered to be some sort of intellectual heavyweight um, oftentimes just kind of boggles my mind. Yeah, because well, the, what I've told from my, my, uh, my friends who actually paid pretty close attention to the NFL is that Kaepernick, before the whole taking a knee thing, he was already dropping down the depth chart and people didn't really care and his career wasn't looking so good. That's correct. He, in fact, had lost his starting job to Blaine Gabbert, who uh, is not a uh, well-known or well, uh, well-received quarterback in his own right. And so, uh, yeah, what Ewing was, I think, a transparent ploy to, uh, to draw attention to himself when he recognized that he was otherwise not going to be receiving very uh, much attention. And again, I mean, look, he had a contractual obligation to stand for the national anthem, just like the NBA players do. And, uh, and to equate him with cancel culture is, frankly, just absurd. Look, everybody in the NFL, whether you are the most talented quarterback in the league or the guy hanging on by his fringes to a, a special team's job, uh, they're all subject to an equation that I like to say 
which is so long as your talent exceeds your problems, you will always be employed. And the problem that Colin Kaepernick has is, look, if Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or Patrick Mahomes took a knee to protest uh, anything, they would still be employed in the NFL because they're three of the best, arguably the three best quarterbacks in the NFL right now uh, in this league, right, historically and, and proven-wise. And so if, if those guys decided they wanted to make a political statement, they might get fined, they might face a substantial blowback, uh, but every team, I believe, would continue to employ them because they're that good at playing the position in which it's so difficult to find talent quarterback. The problem Colin Kaepernick had was not that he took a knee. It was that he took a knee and his talent no longer was sufficient enough for teams to be willing to put up with the challenges he brought to bear uh, from a protest perspective. Um, and, and I've kind of made this joke before, uh, using it from a hyperbolic sense, but Look, I mean, Aaron Rodgers could take a knee and say that he thinks ISIS was unfairly treated by the Trump administration. And somebody would probably still employ him to play quarterback because he's just that good of a quarterback. And people would roll their eyes and say, I really don't care about the politics that he espouses. Um, And the problem for Colin Kaepernick is he's not that good of a quarterback. So people do care because, again, his problems exceed his talents. Now, speaking of people that are having problems on and now off the field, I did see, because it became a a, a viral video moment that dominated the news cycle for a few hours, this incident with uh, with Miles Garrett, where he swung his helmet. Just tell us, give us the the, the quick backstory of of the what happened there, and then the aftermath, because I did see the the storyline percolate for at least a few hours a couple days ago, that there was a claim that there might have been a a racist component that led to the swing of the helmet, which a lot of people, myself included, thought sounded rather dubious under the circumstances. But what happened and where are we now? Well, for six days, there was no suggestion after the swung helmet hit uh, Mason Rudolph in the head. Miles Garrett plays for the Cleveland Browns. Mason Rudolph is the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And at the end of their Thursday night football game, which happened, uh, what, I guess uh, a week uh, or almost two weeks ago now, uh, as we move closer to Thanksgiving, uh, we had Mile, uh, Mason Rudolph get hit in the head uh, with, with a helmet, which is kind of unheard of, swung at him by this defensive player. And uh, for six days, nothing was said about the motivation other than Miles Garrett lost his temper. He apologized. He was saying all of that. And then at the end of that uh, six-day window, suddenly news came out that he was claiming that somebody, Mason Rudolph, had said uh, a racial slur to him, and that was what prompted the attack. Uh, and the NFL said they had investigated it, found no evidence, and upheld his suspension. He made that claim in an appeals hearing. So what I just described it as was a racism Hail Mary, uh, that his uh, attempt at the last minute was to try in some way justify his behavior by citing the way that he had been treated, and I think that's just uh, laughably absurd. Is the punishment uh, appropriate here for Miles Garrett for the crime? I mean, I think it's a significant punishment, but I, I think the NFL ha- knows that the importance of setting a precedent here is that you know, using a helmet as a weapon is a dangerous position to be in. Mason Rudolph is not seriously injured, luckily for him, but he could have been. And uh, I think the NFL needs to have its players know that, that this is uh, this is behavior that is uh, simply unacceptable. So Miles uh, Garrett's going to be out for the rest of the season, uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, at the end of the year uh, with whether he's allowed to return to start next year, which I think he will. And the six-game suspension feels about right to me. Can I just ask you a quick lightning round of some stuff before Thanksgiving so I can pretend that I know something yeah. about football when I'm with my yeah, relatives 100%, 100%, who do? Yes. Who, who, who is the best quarterback in the NFL right now? 
Oh, man, you just stepped into a, a huge debate. Uh, I, I think the best quarterback in the NFL right now is Russell Wilson. I think there's a strong argument for Patrick Mahomes, for Aaron Rodgers. Those are the three best. Lamar Jackson is having an incredible season, and he may be the favorite for the MVP, but those are the four that I would uh, that I would name off the top. Tom Brady, interestingly, not having that great of a season. So uh, if you want those five names and that information I just gave you, you can fake it uh, till you make it. There, so, yeah, well, I got one more. What, what, is the, what is the worst coach team in the NFL right now? Yeah, well, the team that's under fire the most right now, Jason Garrett, uh, is the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and they just lost to the New England Patriots, and uh, he has done – a really poor job of maximizing his talent. He's been on sort of the chopping block for a long time now. And uh, the, the Dallas Cowboys sort of perpetually swing from, you know, the, the, the excitement and, uh, and joy and pure jubilation of, hey, we're going to go to the Super Bowl, to uh, the depths of despair after every loss. They're 6-5, and five, may win their division, likely to make the playoff, but Jason Garrett has not endeared himself to the fan base for yet another season. And who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? i got to ask. Yeah, so if I, if I were predicting right now, I think it's hard to say anything against the Patriots. So I'd pick the Patriots out of the AFC, and I would pick the uh, the 49ers out of the NFC. And, uh, God, I mean, it, it stinks to continue to pick them, but Brady and Belichick are the greatest coach and player combo in NFL history, and they aren't dead yet. And so as long as that's the case, I feel like they will find a way uh, to uh, to triumph into the season, even though I think, like a lot of your listeners, I'd prefer that not be the case. If you guys want somebody who knows about sports and really breaks it all down for you, you just heard it here, but Clay Travis has his own podcast, Outkick the Coverage, where you can check out. Also, his book is Republicans Buy Sneakers 2, which I know is true because I'm a Republican and I buy sneakers. Clay, <laughs> have a very happy Thanksgiving, man. Thanks for giving us your time, and we'll talk to you after the holiday. I appreciate that. Have a good Thanksgiving as well, and everybody else out there uh, as well. Hope everybody has a great holiday. All right, team, when do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Well, you could ask John, whose Blink camera alerted him to burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home, or Shannon, whose Blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, Blink video clips were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two lithium batteries that last up to two years. And when you're away, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check in on kids and pets from anywhere using your Blink smartphone app. No contracts, totally affordable. In fact, Blink systems start at just $79.99. Thanks to Blink, home security just got easier. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash buck. BlinkProtect.com slash buck. One more time, team. BlinkProtect.com slash buck. Also available on Amazon and at Best Buy, Blink is an Amazon company, and it works with Alexa. Blinkprotect.com slash buck. So there's a story team that's making the rounds right now uh, in some places on uh, on the right. I haven't really seen it elsewhere, but here here's the basics of it. Um, and I, I just want to say that I, I can't really assess this other than to say that people that I know and and, and think have good judgment say this is probably crap but even when there's a story that is not true sometimes there are some elements in the background of the story that are worth noting but i also i don't know that it's not true so and it's reported in the jerusalem post which is a reputable publication and it is about whether or not ilhan omar is an asset of cutter this is the story that's out there a witness in a deposition in a federal court in Florida has gone on the record to say and give some details about this. 
Uh, here's the basics of the story. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was recruited by a foreign government, received funding from a foreign government, and passed sensitive information through intermediaries, uh, intermediaries to Iran. A Florida court has been told. That's not, that doesn't mean the court has found, nor has anyone brought charges. Okay. The claims came during testimony by Kuwaiti-born Canadian business, businessman Alan Bender, who was giving evidence in the trial of Sheikh Khalid bin Hamid Al-Thani. The Qatari emir's brother stands accused of ordering his American bodyguard to murder two people and of holding an American citizen hostage. His deposition obtained by Al Arabiya English was authenticated by the attorney for the plaintiffs, according to the publication. All right. Now, a lot of people on the right really don't like Ilhan Omar because of her politics, because of what she says, because of the uh, anti-Semitic stuff she has said in the past. So people see this and they immediately jump at the story. I've seen a lot of people that follow the follow Ilhan Omar's career and and uh, they've been following some of the other controversies, possible uh, campaign finance stuff, the whole situation with her, you know, the, the husband and then the other situation with the brother and the what's going on with the possible the allegation, I should say, of uh, a marriage fraud. Which, believe it or not, marriage fraud is a crime punishable about the five years in federal prison when it involves an immigration violation. So if you marry somebody, but you're not really getting married, you're just doing it so they can get a green card to be here and you're found out, you can go to prison for that. And they do occasionally enforce that, which is so interesting because so much of the rest of immigration law is left as like, you know, who cares? Doesn't matter. We don't have to really enforce this stuff, but... Uh, the Ilhan Omar story, people are saying this is it's flimsy. It's an allegation in court. Yeah, the guy's under oath, but, you know, who knows if they can. And he's just saying he was told this. There's no there's no proof. So I'm not no proof. Here's what I want to note about Ilhan Omar. Though. It is a bad thing when it is so very clear that the press has no interest in vetting, investigating, and looking at a person in politics because of that person's political uh, political beliefs and also because of that person's background. The media does not want to be seen as even investigating. And you could say that through an investigation of Ilhan Omar, not just on this Qatari thing, because this might be complete garbage. And, I, and I'm, I'm being honest with you, it doesn't seem to me like it's, I mean, is it, is it, theoretically possible i mean maybe sure given her view of american foreign policy and her view of the rest of the world could you see maybe uh, some people using her as an agent of influence in the united states against foreign policy that would be in the u.s interest yes but that's very different than having any actual proof of the allegation which we which we don't have but these stories a story like this get more oxygen, get more attention, in part because we know we cannot trust the mainstream press to do what they would normally say they're doing, which is to vet a person, look into that person's background, and uh, bring the public the truth about a situation, which they don't know. I mean, we know that they don't do that as a general rule, but they particularly are hands off about certain people and Ilhan Omar is one of them. So I would just note that I don't know if this story is true or not. It strikes me as unlikely, 
But I also know that we can't trust the press to tell us you know, how, how much investigation has there been of Ilhan Omar by journalists regarding uh, campaign finance issues and also the situation with the brother and the husband. And the, I mean, I don't even know the, the but nobody wants to nobody wants to touch that stuff. Nobody wants to go near any of it. And usually journalists, when they have a, this is a member of Congress, a public figure, elected office, you would think that there could be some belief, some understanding that this person would be subject to uh, a degree of scrutiny that's not dictated by politics and by intersectionality and wokeness and all the rest of it. But no, that is, in fact, the the overriding consideration that they that they have here. So for those who were going to ask me about this, I just I don't I don't have much more um, much more on this than just to say it doesn't strike me as particularly it doesn't strike me as likely, but you can't trust the press to find out any truth about Ilhan Omar that would be problematic for her. So that's kind of where that's kind of where we are. Also, I didn't get to mention this before. I find it, you know, I I know I keep saying nice things about Yang and Tulsi on the show, and I'm not I'm not trying to just do this as a as a as a thing as a bit that I do on the show where we get um, we get into why Yang and Tulsi are the most likable of Democrats, although I think they are. I saw this piece though the weekend. It was so remarkable to me that Andrew Andrew Yang. Hashtag Yang Gang. Uh, Andrew Yang makes jokes sometimes, self-deprecating jokes about uh, Asian-American stereotypes. And this was interesting because usually what you see is that you're never allowed to make jokes about any, e- even if it's it's really meant to be playful and it's not not supposed to be uh, degrading in any way, but you're not allowed to make jokes about it, about any non-white ethnicity, as, a, as particularly as a white person anymore. It had been the case, I had thought, that you could, though, make self-deprecating jokes about an ethnicity if you were of that ethnicity. But even that rule in this current era of extreme wokeness seems to be uh, changing a little bit. There is a, a concern that was, is Andrew Yang, quote, reclaiming stereotypes with Asian jokes, experts say not so much. First of all, experts in jokes? Who are these people? This is NBC News. Experts in being funny? What, what, what are these experts we're talking about here? That's always really good. Expertise is a very abused claim. Uh, but they're saying that he isn't doing a good thing by trying to reclaim stereotypes. They, see, this is what, they change the rules all the time. You know, some ethnicities, for example, can use slurs against that ethnicity as a means of reclaiming the term. We're told that all the time. But you can't use it if you're not of that ethnicity. But you can if you are. But now you can't make jokes about your own ethnicity. And I think the reason that they feel this way, although who knows, they probably change the logic behind this all the time, is because then it lightens everybody up a little bit where they might think it's they don't have to be quite so woke and quite so on guard. And maybe somebody would get the idea that you could make some some jokes based on stereotypes where you're laughing with and not at a, an ethnicity. Um, that would be an idea that the left considers dangerous. So they can't have that. So Yang is not allowed to make jokes about Asian stereotypes, even as an Asian American. That's the reality of the left today. I just want to note that. What we will do is have... What we will do, what we will do is have a 4% tax on income exempting the first $29,000. All right, good. You, you're better at arithmetic than I am. Because what that means is if you are that average family in the middle, 
will make 60000 a year. That means we're going to tax you on 31000 at 4%. Anyone who believes this is a fool, that this is where this will stop, they're going to create a, a, a just a little carve-out tax to give you free health care. This is the Bernie plan now. This is the latest version of what we're being told the Bernie plan is going to be. But what they're saying here is that, or what Bernie's saying, rather, is that uh, 4% above 29000 and you'll never have to worry about health care again, my friends. No way. No way. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. That 4% tax won't be enough. Then, then you know what happens? It becomes a, a 5% and then a 6% tax. You have to, to, to fund the programs that Bernie Sanders is talking about, to even begin to fund them. You would have to raise taxes dramatically, not just on millionaires and billionaires. This is the this is the essential lie that they keep telling, but on everybody. And taxes that get raised that much on people across the board are going to have all kinds of implications for jobs, for productivity, for for just wealth creation overall. We are in a remarkable period right now, the longest bull market in the history of the United States, lowest unemployment in 50 years. Things are very prosperous right now. Why would we start listening to the socialists at this point in time? You know, if America goes down this path of socialism in 2020, you know, we're going to get what we deserve. We're going to get it long and hard. It's going to be a rough way forward. We have all the empirical evidence we need. We have all of the data. And just you know, look around you. What's going on in the country right now? Look at all the ways that we can try to judge on the numbers how things are going you're going to hand over control of the economy to the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party? I mean, I know you won't listen to the show. I mean, there, there are some liberals who listen, which I appreciate. The liberals are like, he's, uh, he's, a bit, he's a bit of a savvy fellow, this sexton. We've got to keep an eye on him. Make sure he doesn't get a little, a little too popular, a little too powerful. Um, but the truth is, Bernie Sanders' plan would be a disaster for you. And I know you know that. But there's so many people who don't believe it. When I was at Politicon debating Bernie Sanders' health care spokesperson, the person assigned his campaign. She's just living in a fantasy land. You're going to have great doctors, great health care. Everything will be super efficient. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic. And you never have to worry about paying for any of this ever again. Well, it's not true. By the way, by the time we figure out it's not true, you'll have had one. You'll probably have had one generation that has gotten used to having their health care uh, paid for by the government. It won't be very good, but they'll get used to paying for it. And then they'll just put this unsustainable burden on future generations of paying for the health care they've already gotten. This is uh, this is the doomsday machine within our own political and economic system that no one is willing to face up to. Nobody is willing to defuse the debt bomb. Nobody is willing to say that you, you can't keep doing this, promising things, giving things today, and then promising that somebody else will pay for it in the future. And this becomes the easiest scam in the world. I mean, if you if you, your taxes are never going to get raised in your lifetime, why wouldn't you say, yeah, give me all the benefits you want right now? Make it somebody else's problem. This is just intergenerational socialism. That's all it is. And this is what Bernie Sanders is promising you without saying as much by claiming that they're going to pay for your health care and everything's going to be fine and, and all the rest of it. Um, but this might even be a, a worse analysis from... The guy who's supposed to be the smart one of the Democrat candidates or the smartest one of the Democrat candidates now, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, he has this to say about the Syrian civil war. Play clip 10. Now, you mentioned the security component uh, of climate. This is very important because we are already seeing evidence that conflict 
and migration crises are increasing because of things like droughts and fires that are accelerated by the problems in our climate. There's some evidence that this contributed, for example, to the Syrian civil war. I mean, this is an absurd stupidity. Climate change contributed to the Syrian civil war. What? This is this is so beyond bonkers. But I've heard other people say this, too, because, you know, climate change, climate change is a religion. Climate change, climate involves everything. Right. Oh, it's warmer outside. So then it's more likely that people might be outside. And then, you know, climate change is causing murders in the streets of uh, Chicago because it's warmer. Right. And murders in the streets of New Orleans or New York or wherever. I mean, it's kind of true, but is it climate change is causing people to murder people or are people murdering people? Uh, this is absurd. This is the, the, the fallacies of causation here are truly mind blowing. And, you know, when you have this supposedly the supposed genius, really, of the Democrat. Oh, he's a Rhodes Scholar. I told you before, Rhodes Scholar. Not that impressive. Don't. That's all. It's like it's the Rhodes Scholar now is like the Nobel Peace Prize. Anybody who knows anything knows. It's like, come on. Very political. Um but yeah, climate change is the cause of the Syrian civil war. You, you, you have to stretch hard to think of ways that liberals could be crazier these days. And uh, this is why, you know, I, I saw the uh, segment last night that Tucker did on his show uh, where he said that the only person in the Democratic Party who could unify the entire Democratic Party has the national recognition and favorables and everything to wipe away all the Democrats' problems right now from the primaries is Michelle Obama. And uh, I, she says she doesn't want... Oh, but he played a clip of Obama saying in 2006, oh, no, I'm not running. Of course, I'm definitely not running. And if we end up having Obama's president for eight years. I, I, you know, I've talked to you about the outlier possibility of a Hillary, a Hillary Clinton run. And I don't think it is likely, but I don't think it's impossible. I think you also would have to say it is not impossible for there to be a Michelle Obama... Uh, candidacy and a Michelle Obama presidency. She would be, make no mistake about it, she would be formidable, my friends. And, uh, you know, we're used to seeing these deeply uninspiring Democrat candidates who have all kinds of problems and negatives and unfavorables and all this stuff. Michelle Obama is a, a widely beloved figure and has all the connections and all the name recognition the Democratic Party could ever want, and then some. Do I think she's going to get in? No, I wouldn't put money on it, but if she did, I do believe she would be the candidate. And I do believe that Trump would have his hands full. I think that that's true. You've got to just think back to, you know, the narratives of the Obama administration and the the feelings of, of, you know, what Obama... Uh, left the Democratic Party with after he was no longer in office. I mean, you know, we've been saying the only way to set right 2016 is if Hillary somehow becomes a candidate and beats Trump now in 2020. That's one narrative for sure. But think about the narrative of Michelle Obama and the and the Democratic Party going forward if she were to run. I don't I don't know. Look, I've never talked to Michelle Obama. I don't know. Never says, oh, she'll never do it. She'll never do it. Does anyone doubt that if Michelle Obama announced that she wouldn't First of all, Joe Biden's support would evaporate overnight. Everybody right now that would vote for Joe Biden would be like, oh, sorry, Joe. Back to now. Now we're going to Michelle Obama. See you later. So so in the national polls, she would be the front runner. I, that I am absolutely confident of. And then look at some of the other candidates out there, too. You know, what 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 support really 
what support lingers for Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama. I mean, I, if we're, if we're thinking a little bit outside the box here, my friends, the way the Democrats can turn this whole thing around is something like a, a uh, game change moment. And in this case, the game change candidate would be would be Michelle Obama. And, you know, look, I was not a fan of the Obama presidency's uh, policies at all. As you know, <laughs> I went I went to the mat trying to fight against them when I first got into this world of media. Um, this is the one thing that I, I don't think Democrats have the strategic foresight to bring, you know, to make this happen. I don't think I think the Democratic Party is too at war with itself in too many ways. And maybe Michelle Obama just also doesn't want to do it. She'd rather just be super famous and super rich and like have everyone talk about how wonderful she is all the time when she just had to be the first lady. That's it. Just had to be first lady. She's the most wonderful person ever. Um, but you never know. Tucker did a segment on last night. I was watching it and I was like, I think this is, uh, I think he, I think he would be onto something if this were reality. But right now it is just speculation, which pundits in political season love to do. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for Roll Call or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. So, by the way, just one quick note. I got a little, I got a tweet last night. This is very nice. I said... Uh, I just said something about my friend Sarah Carter because I saw her. I watched a little Fox last night. Usually I'm too busy, but I watched some Fox last night. And uh, I said something. I said I was watching my buddy Sarah Carter be awesome on The Hannity Show. She's a great journalist and one of the nicest people out there you'd ever meet. And Johnny Joey Jones, who's also a super nice guy, uh, Purple Heart recipient, uh, military EOD veteran, he responded to me, uh, from my experience, Buck climbs the ladder with one hand and reaches down with the other. That's rare in this business, and I applaud it when I see it. And I told him that was very nice. And then I made my day. It was very nice of uh, very nice of uh, Johnny Joey uh, over. He's now a Fox contributor. Very nice of him to say that. Um, and you know, not that I do, the, not that I help people behind the scenes for accolades, but I've helped a lot of people behind the scenes for somebody without a lot of clout in the business. So it was nice to get a. Uh, I do it because I like to do it. I think it's the right thing to do. But it was nice to get a shout out from uh, JJ over at Fox News, Johnny Joey Jones, about that one. I guess that would be JJJ, but uh, about that one. So it was very nice of him. All right, let's uh, let's get into the roll call, shall we? Justin is going to kick us off here. Hey, Buck, working in pharmaceutical supply chain, I can tell you how to reduce prescription medication costs starting today with no effort by the government. Today, our patents expire after 20 years, and it can take up to 10 years from filing to get them into the market. That means the millions and billions of dollars we spend on R&D and other activities have to, re- have to be recouped and a profit made in 10 years before a product goes generic. This actually hurts the early adopters of a new treatment the most as they are the most likely, uh, as they are most likely the most sick and the current treatments aren't working. As such, they pay the brunt of this. If the patents were extended another 10 years, that could literally cut the costs in half as we would... Uh, we could amortize the cost even further and reduce the cost per dose as we'll be living more prior to losing our patents. Justin, that's interesting. I mean, I just feel like you're kind of dispersing the cost more over a longer period of time, which ultimately means the consumers are still paying the same amount, but it would mean that 
in the short term, as you point out, people that are desperate for very you know for new drugs for thing, and when they have drugs that aren't working, uh, that might help them. So certainly interesting, uh, an interesting way to approach it. I'd have to look at how the math would work out on that. Uh, let's keep in mind, I mean, the patents are, in a sense, a government intrusion in the marketplace, right? I mean, you're giving people to incentivize research and development. You are giving a temporary monopoly to a company, a monopoly via government uh, regulation, government legislation. So, you know, you're not re- you know, it's not just the market operating. You got a product and somebody else can make that product. Well, you know, patents are open to interpretation and there's a balancing test uh, that that is done of how long. But I mean, for example, I think like uh, Mickey Mouse is still under. I mean, things that are there are things that are patented that are now going on like 100 years old that are still co- I mean, copyrighted. I'm sorry, not patented. So and people argue that that wasn't initially supposed to be the way the copyrights worked. You know, the fact that the Beatles catalog from the 60s is still worth, you know, billions of dollars or whatever it is. Uh, at what point does it fall into common usage? And, you know, we could play a Beatles song here and not worry about getting sued. I'm just saying. Uh, TJ, did producer Mark say that he shucked corn and skinned a cow over the weekend? Wow, what a standard American. Sounds like Buck needs to hang out with Mark more in the off time. I bet Mark catches catfish from dusk till dawn, not to mention he can probably skin a buck and run a trot line. Uh, yeah. Do you know how to do all those things? Yeah, of course. I uh, go fishing in the Hudson River often. I just have to uh, get get rid of the dead bodies also. So I'm actually uh, part NYPD agent. I help them. With the dead bodies, and I go fishing at the same time. Well, funny, man. I can tell you that I've actually gone fishing in the East River. Why? <laughs> For what? Yeah. Striped bass. That You would eat yeah. that? I, I, we, we took it to a fancy restaurant on the Upper East Side, That's and they filleted for us disgusting. right there. No, it's an estuary. It comes in right from the ocean. I'm Do you, you know fine. the disgusting things that are probably in that river? Yeah, but you ever seen the fish? They they have a filtration process, the gills and stuff. It's fine. Next you say you're going to drop something on the floor of the subway and then eat it. That's the same thing. I mean, I have a strong immune system. Oh, I think. You know? I'm trying to make sure. Even producer Brandon looked back on that one. He was like, that's I need gross, to get dude. some uh, glass between you and I here. I mean, it's going to be flu season soon, so get after it. Now, by the way, did you get a flu shot? No. Are you a flu shot guy, Brandon? I think I'm going to get one because I don't want to miss a whole week of the show because I had the flu three years ago and for a week I was immobilized. I couldn't do anything. What happens if both of us get the flu? Well, then producer Brandon gets to run the show and do the show and you'll hear a lot about Guns and Roses. <clears throat> yeah. Appetite for distraction? What is it? Distortion. Distortion. Yeah, you can yell. We could. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat what you say over the mic. Uh, Aaron. Whoa, this is long. Buck, I was wondering if you could address COPA when you returned from the holiday. It was a law passed in 1998, of course, authored by a Democrat. Recently, YouTube had to settle with the FTC for $170 million and change its rules as a result. That means that a lot of good, clean family content will be wiped out financially. For one, because they're not allowed to use targeted ads. This makes no sense to me, et cetera, et cetera. I love free market. I hate to see regulation. Aaron, I don't know much about COPA. All I know, this is COPPA. Not like Copa Cabana, right? That's a different COPA. Or the, right? Yes, that's a different Or the Copa. Copa Mundial, the World Cup, for those of us who like to watch a little soccer because we're barely American. Uh, Aaron, I don't know much about the COPPA um, other than what I saw on the show Silicon Valley, which I do find to be a very funny show. 
Uh, quite a quite a clever show. Um, so I got nothing for you on that right now. Then I'll have to look at it. And maybe I'll come back to it after the holiday. If producer Mark reminds me. Usually he guilts me into it. He says you promised the audience. He's he's your advocate here in the hut. I just want to do what I want to do. I'm an artiste here in the hut. He makes sure that I keep promises to the degree that I can. It's all up to producer Brandon after Thanksgiving. That's true. Actually, producer Mark is going to be uh, not thinking about us as he is downing. You know, mudslides and mai tais uh, in Jamaica. And so pina see, coladas, love mm-hmm. those. All of those things. We are going to do a live show tomorrow, my friends. So you should listen tomorrow. We'll have a special Thanksgiving extravaganza. Also, over the holiday, when you're talking to friends and family, what are you going to tell them? Download the Buck Sexton Show. Subscribe on iTunes. Best podcast out there. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high. I understand what it's like to go through the process of buying life insurance. I had to do it before I went overseas. It felt a little bit weird. But that's why you need to check out my friends at Ethos Life Insurance, because they make sure that there's no hassle, no nonsense, and they'll find a plan that allows you to make sure that your family is prepared for an uncertain future. This is something you've got to do. It's the responsible choice, and Blink makes it easy for you. There's no fine print or silly appointments or fees that you just really can't afford. Ethos's approach is simple, to blend industry expertise, technology, and the human touch. That helps you find the right policy for you to protect your loved ones. It only takes about 10 minutes to apply, and Ethos is already trusted by thousands. Get a fast, free, and personalized quote right now at ethoslife.com. Again, that's ethoslife.com. Ethos Life Insurance is life insurance that actually fits your life.